Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. My name is Larry Mishkin of Michigan Law in Chicago, and uh, I'm joined by my uh, two co-hosts today, Jim Marty out in Colorado, uh, Rob Hunt, uh, summering out in New York. Uh, Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. Yes, a big day in the cannabis world, which we'll be talking about. Also, I get to talk a little bit about a great show I went to last Friday with an up-and-coming band that's about to make a breakthrough called Goose. Beautiful, beautiful. And Rob, what's going on in New York? Well, I think everyone's buzzing about Chuck Schumer's legislation right now, so I think we have a lot to talk about and you know what that means for the cannabis industry. So uh, I think we probably should kick the show off with, uh, with that discussion today. I think you're right. So, guys, we're going to dive into the Cannabis Administration and Opportunity Act that Chuck Schumer has been working on. Um, there's a lot of good things to talk about there. Uh, Jim Marty does have a review of the Goose concert that he saw. And uh, our Grateful Dead topic for the day is we're looking at the 31st anniversary of the final three shows that Brent Midland played with the Grateful Dead, uh, which coincidentally enough also happened to be in Chicago, uh, this time down in the uh, southern suburb of Tinley Park at the World Music Theater. And uh, those three nights of music are famous for a lot of reasons, including... Uh, legendary traffic jams, uh, probably one of the worst sheds you'll ever see the Grateful Dead in, and of course uh, Brent Midland's final show. So we'll get to all of that, but I think uh, that Rob is right. This uh, new uh, administrative act that uh, Chuck Schumer and uh, Ron Wyden and Cory Booker are leading right now uh, is all about the possibility of ending the uh, federal uh, 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 categorization of marijuana as a controlled substance and uh, finally giving it the same treatment that it's giving hemp by declaring uh, that in fact it's not a controlled substance anymore and leaving it to the states to decide what they would like to do. Uh, Rob, give us your thoughts, uh, your first impressions on uh, uh, this new act and what you think about it. Well, I mean, I'm a cynic when it comes to these things, Larry, so I'll start off with uh, three very simple thoughts. D-O-A. Uh, I don't think there's a chance in the world this legislation goes through any more than I think any other major pieces of legislation that are pending go through. Um, I certainly don't think that the way the uh, the graduated tax rate uh, is going to be met with you know a fair amount of uh, opposition from directly within the cannabis industry, especially if uh, Section 280 of the tax code doesn't go away in the same process. But um, you know, e- even away from that, uh, I don't see this piece of legislation passing. I think it's a great way for Schumer to look like he's very pro-cannabis as he's thinking about his re-election next year. But it's certainly not something that uh, I think is going to get the, the required votes in the Senate to get through. And do you think that's because of a current lack of uh, bipartisanship, or is that because the Senate's not ready to pass a marijuana bill? I, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't seen any major piece of legislation really get uh, legs inside the Senate. You know, I think it's great that this is getting some attention. I think it's going to help to accelerate the, uh, the discussion. But when it comes to what the actual terms are that are proposed within this piece of legislation, uh, I don't think there's a chance in the world that it gets through because of the way it's drafted. And I certainly don't think you get you know anyone crossing the aisle outside of a couple you know key uh, libertarians that you know cross over from the Republican side. But you know if the goal of McConnell and Co is still to stifle any sort of um, legislation that the Dems want to pass, uh, this is certainly a very easy one for them to step on. Don't think there's a, a chance that we see it. Uh, you know, get to a floor vote. If it does get to a floor vote, I think it goes down in flames. Okay. Well, it's always the uh, the realist, and I think in this industry, uh, a dose of realism is always required because the initial reaction is to say, oh, fantastic, look at this. Uh, 
uh, things are going in the right direction, but you're correct to point out that uh, the history of the United States Senate over the last, uh, oh, what, four or five or six years at least, if not further back, has been one where they haven't been able to agree on a whole lot of things. And although the House manages to pull it together and uh, from time to time pass some marijuana legislation, we just haven't seen it done in the Senate. Jim, let me ask you, um, what are your thoughts on the, uh, the the potential tax implications of this new plan and how they plan to uh, use it to raise revenue? Well, I certainly would not look forward to a uh, 20 or 25 percent retail sales tax. Um, also, it looks like if it did pass, it would be intrastate, i.e. crossing state lines with cannabis products. So um, it may not be that helpful to the industry as we know it today. Um, that sales tax could encourage people to continue to home grow and illicit market. But um, I'm not, although I agree with Rob <clears throat> um, that it may not get out of committee, I'm a little more optimistic than that. Um, I think this could get a floor vote. And, and if it does, um, you know, I think there's be 10 um, Republican senators. The, the other question would be, would you have any Democratic defectors? So, so we'll see. I mean, many of these Republican senators come from states that have legal cannabis and have had it for a number of years, and they've seen that it's actually uh, not harmful and a good revenue raiser. So I'm a little more optimistic than Rob, but I do agree with him that getting out of committee is going to be the hardest thing. Let me ask you this, Jim. Do you read this to, to say that if I want to go in after uh, marijuana has been legalized on a federal basis and I go into my dispensary in Illinois, Am I now paying 25% retail sales tax to the feds plus the 20% that Illinois is also taking? Too soon to tell, but at first read, that's how I get it. A gradual federal tax rate would be imposed on marijuana sales starting at 10% and rising to 15, 20, and 25%. So yeah, you'd be getting close to a 50% uh, sales tax at the retail level. And uh, that's certainly going to encourage people to uh, grow their own. Sure. Well, isn't that what we're seeing in, you know, in California, right, where the, the taxing got so out of control that the, the black market has continued to thrive? To me, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, if you're going to if you think that the consumers are going to sit there and be willing to pick up another 25 percent in additional tax this time for the feds, that sounds a little outrageous. Yes. Yeah, speaking to an associate today recommending that um, the federal tax should be like the excise tax on alcohol, L low uh, but consistently spread across the mi millions and billions of dollars of alcohol sales. Okay. Rob, back to you for a minute. Do you think it's just that we're going to have to probably wait for the the makeup of the U.S. Senate to change? Or we, do you see a point in time um, where the senators can find a way to get some agreement if you get some of the Republican senators who are a little more libertarian and are willing to step over the line uh, to help their own constituents. Um, do you think that's something that's feasible? Because uh, if not, you know, who knows when the level of bipartisanship is going to ratchet down to a point where the, you know, the type of cooperation that might be necessary can be achieved. Oh, come on, Larry. You don't think the Republicans and the Dems are going to start working nice and harmoniously together anytime soon? Come on, man. Like, what makes you think that? Well, maybe we sent Owlsley into the cafeteria to spike all of their food. Exactly. Maybe if we dosed the entire Senate, we might have a chance. 
Um, look, and before that happens, which I think, you know, there's a snowball's chance in hell that we're going to watch bipartisanship anytime soon unless, you know, one of the uh, two parties kind of implodes and has to start rebuilding from the ground up. And I think the likelihood of that happening is, you know, nowhere on the horizon either. So, you know, let, let's take it from, you know, what, what Jim said that, you know, there might be a larger group of people that are willing to cross the aisle. Uh, you know, sure. Do I, do I think that there is a time, you know, I've been pretty, pretty vocal about my beliefs on this, that at a certain point in time, you know, we've got 38 states now with medicinal and we've got 18 states with adult use. Uh, of those, not all of their programs have gotten off the ground or operational yet, but at a certain point in time, you know, every one of these states will be uh, operational for adult use, which very soon will include New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, very likely uh, Ohio and Florida, close behind that, which leaves essentially Texas as the last. Well, well, Connecticut's not a big population state, Jim. You know, as far as states that move the political needle, you know, let's talk about Michigan, Illinois, New York, California, Florida, Texas. Those states actually matter, right? So when you think about, you know, what the, uh, the, the population of the U.S. is and, you know, how many constituents are actually within those states, you hit a certain point where there is, there is a tipping point legislatively where it's untenable to say, you know, we can no longer uh, ignore this. We're not there yet. You know, we're, we're close, but we're not there yet. So I think that in the next, you know, several years, as we see New York uh, implement what's already legal, but it won't be implemented until 2020 or, or, excuse me, 2022 or so. New Jersey is still getting off the ground. Wolf hasn't, you know, officially moved yet in Pennsylvania. Um, North is still, you know, figuring uh, Virginia out. But once these, once these bigger, you know, called north of 15 million person states get all of their, uh, their programs live, then I think we've got a much better chance because now the governors are putting pressure on their senators and saying, you know, get back to D.C. and figure this out because, you know, we're still worried about the, uh, the viability of this marketplace. And it's becoming difficult for law enforcement to interpret what's, you know, under the farm bill and what's under, you know, the, the cannabis laws. I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. Already right now, people are taking cannabis plants that are, you know, clones that are, you know, called six inches tall, and they're shipping those across state lines because technically, if you were to COA those plants, they're still testing at below 0.03%, and you can claim them as hemp. So whether or not they are hemp, you know, they don't meet the definition because they haven't been grown under the Department of Agricultural rules within that state, but it's hard for law enforcement to make that determination because the person transporting them goes, look, it's just hemp, test them, you know, they're not, they're not producing THC, which means you can shift cannabis anywhere across the country right now without, you know, I wouldn't say without fear of reprisal, but certainly with a fair amount of confusion. So at a certain point, law enforcement's going to say, we, we need to have better clarity on this and, you know, Congress, you need to act. So whether that comes from the attorneys general, um, there's a good chance. But ultimately, does it even matter? Because if you're putting in a, a tax rate like you're talking about, and to Jim's point, you know, 20% on top of a 25 federal rate, and then 280E on top of that, there's no possible way that this market works uh, with what, you know, Schumer's proposing which means effectively we're right back to the illicit market and the illicit market's not going away. So it's, you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. If they deschedule it though, wouldn't that solve the 280E problem if it's no longer schedule one or schedule two for that matter? Yeah. I mean, what Schumer's proposing right now actually uh, relegates the, uh, the industry to the ATF E, which is, you know, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and explosives. Yep. So if they were to pick up, and, and Larry, you and I have talked about this five years ago, and that was always my expectation of which you know regulatory agency would pick this up, and I always thought it would be the ATF and not the FDA. Mm-hmm. And so if a- ATF is getting this and it's taking it out of the purview of DEA and it's taking it out of the purview until you've got you know consumer packaged goods out of the FDA's purview, uh, and they're the ones that are really you know handling this, then, then theoretically you'd expect to see a designation that takes it away from Schedule One or Schedule Two, and if you do, then then that theoretically should take it out of. Um, uh, the realm of 280 as well, but that's not overtly stated in the legislation. Right, right. But I think 
it would 2ED would go away if this happens. I can't imagine it going on. But um, yeah, it's just interesting that this came out right on the heels of Justice Thomas's opinion two weeks ago. True. You know, maybe they maybe the Democrats you know viewed that as a as a as a sign that now is the time to move. Uh, either way, um, you know, look here's what we can say, and you know. Uh, Rob, as much as I hope you're wrong, uh, I suspect that there's probably a lot of truth to what you're saying and that uh, people should not get all excited about, you know, running out and marching down the street with a big bonfire of joints to celebrate, uh, you know, the federal uh, federal green light anytime soon. Um, on the other hand, I think it's probably fair to say that the combination of things like an opinion from Justice Thomas that we saw a couple of weeks ago, as well as the fact that such an aggressive bill is now being even proposed in the United States Senate, should be taken, uh, you know, by those of us who believe in legalization as a positive sign that at least things are trending in the right direction. And even though now might not yet be the time, uh, you know, I like to think that these are all signs that at least tell us that we're on our way. Yeah, I mean, if, if you think of um, if you think of prohibition as being a wall, then you know every single time something like this happens is one brick that's removed from you know the wall of prohibition. Whether it's Thomas, whether it's you know new pieces of legislation, whether it's you know municipalities changing the, um, their rules, or whether it's a state advancing new legislation, every one of these you know incrementally makes a difference, and ultimately it leads to you know the the end result that we all know is inevitable. It's just a question of when. So, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not overly concerned, and in many ways, you know, as I've said hundreds of times, I love illegality. Illegality allows all of us to, you know, have jobs. Illegality allows us to all, you know, help businesses develop, uh, you know, really strong, robust businesses where, you know, they've got a chance to do it before the large capital, you know, comes in. Um, so it's, while it's not easy, if you can figure out a way to work within this regulatory environment and, you know, actually have a multi-billion dollar market cap with, with what you're facing off against right now, then, you know, how good are these guys going to be and how successful and profitable will they be when the you know, walls of prohibition officially come down? And can they be defensible against the attacks of, you know, large private equity firms? And the answer is, you know, we're, we're close to that point now. Yep. And, and Jim, that's a, that's a sentiment you've often echoed as well. Yeah. Well, I was on the phone today with an Oklahoma client who was in well in excess of 100% tax bracket. And, uh, you know, the way to beat 280E and have a profit after taxes is to have enough gross profit to pay your federal taxes and still have some profit left over. Um, and the Oklahoma situation is very low population state with 2,000 active retail licenses. It's kind of hard to raise your prices. So let's hope this goes yeah. through. And that's you know, the thing that a lot of people don't understand, especially even in the investment community, is that you know, all revenue produced in a cannabis business isn't equal. You know, the, the cultivators are still by far and away the best revenue producers out there because their revenue actually, you know, you're able to deduct a majority of your cogs. So while I see you know, like the Wall Street money rushing at you know, retailers or you know, brands, ultimately they're not the ones making money right now because they're still subservient to a, um, to a very difficult uh, tax regulation, whereas the cultivators aren't. And everyone's like, oh, well, they're going to get commoditized and you know, there's going to be price compression. Well, as long as new retailers like in Oklahoma, 2,000 of them open, then there's 2,000 store shelves that need to be populated with product, and they're buying from someone, and they're, they're buying from the cultivators. So I don't see, as, as new states continue to expand and more and more stores open in those states, then there isn't going to be, in the near term, price compression or commoditization at the, uh, at the cultivation level. And for all the people that believe otherwise, you know, look, it's, it's pretty, well, um, pretty well defined at this point where the, where the good revenue is coming from or where the bad revenue is. And as a final thought, Larry, to, to what you're saying, 
Um, you know, look, we, we know that this wasn't Schumer's announcement wasn't met with um, any fanfare, because if you look at the market today, the day after this was announced, cannabis stocks were in the red across the board and oftentimes, you know, in double digits. So, you know, usually when you've got a piece of legislation announced like this, fools rush in, everyone buoys the market. All of a sudden you've got all the retail investors coming in and just buying up cannabis going, here's my entry point. That didn't happen this time, which means that, you know, whatever's out there is already priced in. And, uh, and nobody's looking at this as, um, you know, the next major event. And, wow, here's our, here's our buying opportunity going into, quote, legalization. Do you, do you view that as a, as a maturation of, the, uh, of the, the public, the people who invest in stocks? You know, we're, it's, you know, having learned over the last couple of years that, you know, they don't need to react quite so strongly to, you know, what we in the industry view as more subtle changes. It's hard to say. I mean, you look at the last major event, which was, you know, the January 5th runoff vote in Georgia, and that, you know, spent, spent, uh, set the, um, all the public equities uh, to record highs. Uniformly across the board, you know, over the next month, everyone gained 30, 40, 50 percent in value, and they've all fallen off those highs since, you know, call it mid-February, and nobody's recovered back to that previous high. You know, again, we're in the summer, so the old adage of, you know, sell in May and go away still stands. Uh, you know, if, if you look back at the MSOs over the last five or six years, it's formulaic that from May to August, they've kind of sit in the doldrums. But we'll see. We'll, we'll know a lot more in September uh, on whether or not we see, you know, kind of new record highs emerge again. And, and that's, by the way, on the back of better and better um, uh, revenue reporting and better and better net production. You know, you're seeing companies now that are truly profitable coming out of this that they should get the um, uh, additional value. It's kind of like, you know, when Amazon finally crossed into profitability and all the people that were naysayers for years now all of a sudden turned around and said, wow, this company really can make money, and that just exploded. I expect to see the same thing with a handful of the MSOs once they hit, you know, true profitability. Um, but, you know, look at how it was priced in back at the last major events, whether it's, you know, um, different pieces of legislation or, you know, different optimism that's being buoyed by, you know, whatever the sentiment is based on legislation. This time it didn't happen in a very in a striking way. It did not happen. Okay. Well, this is all interesting stuff, you know, and uh, it certainly gives us something to talk about. And I guess we'll have to sit back and, and wait and see where the administration goes with this and uh, where the Senate can take it. I do note that I, I read an article that said that Biden himself is not a big fan of the bill. He's not a big fan of marijuana. We know that. Uh, I think that Kamala is a very strong proponent of cannabis legislation. And I think that, you know, they've always gone into this as a partnership very in a very similar way to the way Biden and, um, and Obama went into their presidency and vice presidency as a partnership where uh, the vice president was very involved in major decisions. But, you know, I, even if Biden's not a fan and we at this point know that he's not, Jen Psaki's made it pretty clear in press conferences that, you know, Biden's position is not all that favorable to cannabis. Having said that, do I think he would veto legislation that made it through on a bipartisan basis? No, the guy's going to take whatever win he can put up there. It doesn't matter if it's on infrastructure, if it's on health care, if it's on immigration reform. Whatever time he can say, I got something done in the first, you know, this first term, he's going to take the win. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Do we want to move on to uh, music? Yeah, let's dive into music. And uh, Jim, why don't you give us a quick review of uh, the music, the, the live music you just saw? Yeah, I was, went to uh, a show. wasn't at Red Rocks, but I think the next time uh, Goose comes to town, the, the next summer, they'll be playing Red Rocks. Really good jam band. Really good. They're getting a lot of buzz, a lot of good vibes. Uh, they're from Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, their sound system is phenomenal. 
Um, I don't know that much about them um, other than um, I guess one of their fathers is a pretty big wig on Wall Street and is financially backing them because their instruments and their sound system is just top-notch state-of-the-art. And uh, <clears throat> they have what I look for in a band, which is that every great band has their own sound. So the Beatles have a sound. If you hear a Who song, you pretty much know it's a Who song. Grateful Dead, Fish. Uh, Goose, has, Goose has that. If I heard a little bit of uh, a Goose song in the background, I would pick up, now that I've seen them live, I'd say, oh yeah, isn't that Goose in the background where it's playing? So they definitely have their own sound. Uh, definitely jam band, uh, eight song, 90 minute set uh, in the first set. So, um, but yeah, they'll be back in Denver uh, the Sunday and Monday before Thanksgiving, and uh, we'll be seeing them again then. But, do they uh, play, uh, Jim, do they play original material or do they do covers or both? They do some covers. They did a, um, <clears throat> uh, it'll come to me, but yeah, they do like one or two covers, but they do them so differently, you wouldn't hardly even know it. They did a Peter Gabriel song. God, I'm thinking the name of it. But anyway, uh, yeah, they killed it. Um, and again, I hardly recognize it as a uh, Peter Gabriel song. But a uh, lot, lot of original tunes, too. Uh, really good second set. Uh, 10 o'clock curfew, so no encore. But uh, they got five or 6,000 people there. And I think I went Friday night, and the next night, Saturday, I guess, was even bigger. But it was really good to see downtown Denver hopping. We made a full night out of it. Uh, went out afterwards, had some drinks, got food at 1.30 in the morning and uh, line out the door for gyros at 1.30, 2 o'clock in the morning. So we're getting back to normal. Very nice. Well, good. I'm glad you got to see some live music and we'll have to keep our eyes open uh, for when Goose comes through town and check that out. So turning to our, uh, our main musical topic for the day, it's hard to believe, but uh, it's 31 years ago, uh, I believe uh, it'll be tomorrow, uh, July 21st, uh, which was the first night of the the three-night run that ended the Grateful Dead's 1990 summer tour, or at least the first part of the summer tour, ending in uh, in July. And um, it was a, a very famous run of shows for any one of a number of reasons that we'll get into, uh, but probably most significantly remembered as being the final three shows that Brent Midland played with the band um, before the Dead made yet another transition at the keyboard. And for those of us who started seeing the Grateful Dead in the 1980s and only knew Brent Midland as a keyboard player and never had experienced Keith, never had experienced Pigpen or Tom Constantin or anybody else, uh, it, was, it was the first real bit of upheaval for those of us that fell into that group uh, waiting to see how the band would reimagine itself and what they would do uh, without Brent. And that'll be a topic for another day. But uh, these shows were, were very, very interesting. Rob, were you at those shows? I didn't make it out to Chicago that summer. Uh, would have loved to have. And again, like most of my friends did make it out. And it was one of those things that when they got back, I was uh, very, very disappointed that I didn't uh, make it that far west on that tour. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say that because I've always had very mixed feelings about these shows. And although I think that they had some real strengths musically, and we'll get into one of them in a minute, um, uh, there was a lot about it that just was not good karma for me. They, uh, uh, it was a brand new facility. Um, it, it, it wasn't really set up very well to hear sound. There was a whole, on, on, on both sides, there were at least two sections of seats 
that were so far off to the side that you were literally looking, you know, past the front of the stage. You couldn't even see the stage. Um, uh, it was a big shed with a big muddy hill, and uh, they had way too many people inside. Uh, they had people rushing the gate and things like that. But probably the biggest, the biggest setback was the first night. They were so unprepared for the, the phenomenon that is the Grateful Dead at that point in time that when people started descending on the show, they just weren't ready for it. They didn't have the parking lots up and running early enough, uh, so people started parking their cars everywhere. And before you knew it, traffic was so backed up that they literally shut down a mile and a half of Interstate 80. So whereas if you have a full gas of tank and enough extra in the car, you could get your car in New Jersey and drive all the way straight through to San Francisco without touching your brakes, unless you were driving through Tinley Park, Illinois that night, in which case you would have been stuck in about a four or five or six hour traffic jam. And it was just unbelievable to us that uh, anyone could be so unprepared in the fact that deadheads were just literally abandoning their cars on the side of a highway, an interstate highway, just leaving them there, walking off to go make their way to the show and assuming that they could come back later and their cars would still be there. And some were, some weren't. But uh, it, it was just, in that respect, it was just, it was a, it was a very uneven three nights. By the second night, we figured out how to get in through the back door, so we, we avoided further problems on I-80. Um, but we never really got past all of that, at least my group, for the, for the three nights that they were there. And uh, although we did stop to enjoy the music and uh, appreciate that at the end they sent us off with the weight with, with Brent uh, jamming on that tune, as he always does, um, I think that the dead picked up on it very quickly. That was the only time they ever played at Tinley Park. And starting the following year, they became regulars on the summer tour at Soldier Field. So, you know, from a guy who was there, great music, not the best music I've ever heard, lousy, lousy venue. I'm glad that it was only for one year there. Well, my comments are from, you know, last week, uh, early before those shows, they, they played, if I have my timeline correctly, Mile High Stadium, which holds 60, 70,000 people, and there was maybe 20,000 people on a tarp-covered baseball field. So, again, not the finest venue. But, yeah, I do remember that July of uh, 1990, um, uh, the fish, uh, or not fish, but uh, hearing the news that Brent Midland had died and uh, being shocked and disappointed. I have some very fond memories of him playing uh, at Red Rocks, getting his solos, and uh, playing... Uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy into Hey Jude and back into Dear Mr. Fantasy. Larry, I think you might have been there too. You're right, in 84 when they broke it out. And it was really special to see. He was, I mean, he really added a lot. And um, even in these shows, he added a lot. And it's interesting when you go back and you read uh, the notes and the listings of the shows and they talk about how, um, uh, which night was it where they... Uh, I can't remember. Um, they, they played the final Hey Pocky Way that they ever played. Uh, the, the second night, July 22nd. And in fact, they played it in the second set out of a Samson and Delilah in the Hey Pocky Way. And uh, yeah, that was the end of, of, of Hey Pocky Way. And in the first set, it was the last far for me. Without Brent, those tunes were gone. And, uh, you know, whether you liked them or whether they were just space fillers, you know, it, would, it, it just signified the end of another era of the band. And, um, you know, it was sad in that regard. Brent was a young guy. I think he had a lot of potential, a lot of strong future in music. Um, you know, he just happened to fall in on the uh, heroin side of things. And 
you know, the, the, the final story was never a good one playing uh, a uh, Nintendo or Atari game or something and literally fell over with the needle still stuck in his arm. And um, very, very tragic. And, uh, you know, my understanding was it had a real impact on Jerry as well, who had really established a great relationship with Brent. And, um, uh, you know, like anything else, I think it, 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 it created a little bit of a setback that the band had to try and overcome. Uh, but I think a lot of people would say that notwithstanding that there's plenty of good shows uh, from post-Brent until the end, that, you know, that, that seemed to really kind of close off uh, such a creative era for the band. And it, it just seemed like, even though I, and I, I, I like Vince Welnick and I, I'm not here to slam him, but I don't think he ever really quite fit in it and filled the void the way Brent was able to. And uh, in my opinion, at least, uh, they, they just never were quite the same again. Yeah, yeah, we got the uh, two keyboard players with Bruce Hornsby as well as Vince Wellnick. True, and that was wonderful for a while. It was. I really enjoyed when he would get out his accordion. I'm talking about Bruce. Sure, that too. I was going to say, I think that, you know, those Tinley Park shows, um, you know, really was more than just an end of an era, uh, you know, and that was a relatively short summer tour. They had a pretty big fall tour that was initially planned that they had to scale back a little bit when uh, when Vinny came in and uh, took over. I think it was only an 11-show fall tour, and then they obviously did the October um, Europe run that year. But if you think about you know all the momentum they had going in, if it, there's just a recently there was an interview with Bob Weir where they said, "What was your peak era, you know, as a band?" And he said there was the late '80s. You know, it was kind of post coma for Jerry, and that they were firing on all cylinders. If you look at you know spring tour nineteen ninety, which is you know where the vast majority of without without a net came from, um, those shows were straight fire. It was just amazing. And if you listen to you know Tinley Park, I mean, notwithstanding the uh, the issues of traffic and all the issues the fans have with getting in there, but you know there were certainly highlights in there, and the energy was great. And I just don't think we ever recaptured that you know true energy, whether it was you know as you said from Hey Pocky Ways or Blow Ways or Give Me Some Lovin's or some other things that Brent was just you know really really important to um, to those songs. So, you know, disappointing for me um, that, you know, I was, you guys got to see, you know, Brent as your primary keyboard player. For me, I got to see Vince as my primary keyboard player, and it just wasn't, wasn't the same. And, uh, Jim, not, not to correct you on your stats, but there was no Mile High show in 1990. The, the Mile High show was in 1991 after Bonner Springs. Um, then that ended the summer tour in 91, but 90 uh, did skip Denver. Thank you. I wasn't sure of the year. Um, well, th those are all great points, Rob, and uh, uh, certainly well taken. And in fact, um, you know, we can touch on this a little bit in a moment. But uh, Dan, I believe we have a uh, a clip from the uh, from the the show on the twenty first, the first night, and uh, I believe it is uh, towards the end of the fire on the mountain that came out of the scarlet begonias that they opened the second set with. Can you play that for us, Dan? Yeah, which I picked, by the way, because of the playfulness between Jerry and uh, Brent specifically, just to show kind of how good the two of them were working together, um, you know, on a high-energy song like that. I agree. Let's listen to it. Uh, that's good stuff that we saw, you know, coming out of there. So really nice to see, um, you know, the 
again, really high energy coming out of a fire. And that was when they really had the, the fantastic endings to fires where they did the, uh, they wound it back down with the bam, with like the sort of high end tinny noise. The same, same way they ended it, um, from, uh, the Scarlet fire at like 10, 14, 94, uh, from MSG, which is, you know, just another Titanic version from, uh, from the nineties. But that Tenley Park one, you know, another tape that I wore out in, you know, my early years of college. Absolutely. No, I understand. And, you know, it it's kind of hard to screw up a Scarlet Fire for the Grateful Dead. And, you know, even on a night when they may not be hitting it on all cylinders, um, that always seems like a tune that kind of centers them, a combination that brings them back and, you know, uh, gets them going in a, in, a, in a great role. And, in fact, they went on and... Um, it really, really was a very strong second set. The fire goes into a great play, and he's gone. They came out of the space into a miracle, um, a kind of a, a late-in-the-show second set. Crazy Fingers back into playing. Uh, Dear Mr. Fantasy back into playing. And then they closed the show with One More Saturday Night, which is always nice because it, it leaves the encore uh, unknown at that point. But um, it was a fun show. Very good. So... Um... We haven't talked too much about fish today, and I just want to chime in and say um, fish tickets for Dick's Labor Day weekend are starting to loosen up. I was able to get tickets for all three nights, and so were my, was my family, and uh, the prices were not outrageous. For the listeners out there, it looks like uh, if you want to see fish on Labor Day weekend this summer, you'll get a chance to do it at some fairly reasonable prices. Well, I've, I've been noticing that, that as events, sporting events and uh... Uh, concerts are opening that, at least in a lot of places, are not quite back to full crowds yet, and that I think it's going to take people a while to kind of, to, you know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to want to see if the, a few of these shows go down and make sure that everybody comes out of it okay and and that, you know, that, that all is good and the music still sounds good. But, um, yeah, you can go and take advantage of shows now and get tickets to get in there and see folks. It's always a great time to do it. Well, those are good points, Larry. We'll uh, be interested to follow uh, if there's any spike in COVID hospitalizations after the All-Star game. Right. Uh, that, that park was pretty full last night. No, that's right. That's true. Right. That was in Denver. I forgot about that. That was in Denver. Did you make it to that, Jim? No, no. I watched it at my favorite cigar bar where I was getting my butt kicked at poker. Just like the National League. So, you know, it all works out. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's true about the All-Star game being there. You know, like I said, that'll be a good tester. Yeah, because yeah. you know a lot of people were in from out of town too. Right. Well, and it's going to take events like that, I think, for people to see, and you know, hopefully, um, as as vaccination numbers go up and uh, we can control that a little bit more. But you know, it's like anything else. I think that there's enough people in this country who want to do what they want to do, and um, they're going to do it. The shows I've been at have been packed, just packed. Okay. Good. Well, that's a good sign. If people are you know ready to get back to music, then. Uh, I'm sure music is ready to get them back, too, so that's also a good thing. So, yeah, so folks who are looking for something good to listen to, check out The uh, the Grateful Dead at um, Tinley Park, if for no other reason, just to capture the final three nights of the Brent Midland era of the band and uh, enjoy it. And uh, there are a lot of other good things in there. Like I say, the, uh, the encore, the third night, was The Wait, and that's another tune that's really kind of hard to screw up. It's just such a good tune, and... Uh, when the dead were clicking, they really played it well, and Brent sang his verse, and uh, um, you know we all walked out of there saying, "Okay, well, look, it was a, it wasn't the most perfect of the three nights, but it was still three nights with the Grateful Dead, and that's always a good thing." Um, and unfortunately, when we found out a, a few weeks later that, that Brent had died, 
it obviously gave the shows uh, a new level of importance for us. Uh, right until Jerry died, and we became known as the town where the Grateful Dead come to play, and then people die. So um, not necessarily the moniker you want to walk around with, um, and we're glad that the other guys still see fit to keep coming back to town and, and playing their music here. So we'll look forward to Dead & Co. still uh, in Wrigley Field in September, and uh, although I see that Phil has a very uh, vigorous tour for a guy his age, it does not appear that he's coming through... Uh, this particular area so we will i don't know if i'll have a chance to see him or not yes i have my phil tickets for there's colorado two two of his three colorado shows i might get to all three because i'm a big phil and friends uh fan and uh hey and just another note uh on goose i uh, recall the uh cover they did and you can check it out online i'm sure with all the handheld uh phones uh, the peter gabriel song was a hit for genesis in your eyes oh sure okay it's an interesting song to play, and you know what? If they can jam on it... That was actually a Peter Gabriel solo. That was done on uh, the album So, which was Peter Gabriel's solo album from 1987. That's true. Peter Gabriel had a band before his solo career? <laughs> yes, kids, he did. But, uh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a good cover, too. So, okay, look, that's always fun. You know, there's nothing more fun than hearing what a jam band can do to a tune, right? When the dead were covering Louie Louie for a while... Uh, we, we were listening to half the song before we figured out what it was they were playing. Um, you know, just the way they slowed it down and really, you know, played it almost dirge-like. But, uh, you know, that's that's interesting, too. So we, we always enjoy that. Um, yeah, ch uh, check it out because they absolutely killed it. It was probably a, you know, 15, 20-minute version. Okay. Very good. I love the disclaimer, Jim, that you gave that the kids are from Greenwich and one of their dads is in finance. I figured that was just uh, assumed, based on the fact they're from Greenwich, that uh, at least one of them would be a hedge fund manager. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they're pretty well um, funded and backed. As, as to be expected from a, a Greenwich-based band. Exactly. Um, well, guys, I think that that wraps up our topics for today. Um, there's lots of good stuff coming up in, in future weeks to come. Uh, for anybody who wants to take a look at the schedule and, and look ahead, uh, as we begin to round out July, uh, we had the release of Terrapin Station in 77. Um, maybe next week we'll spend a few minutes talking about the uh, the legendary Watkins Glen show that they did with the Allman Brothers, which produced a sound check so legendary that it's got its own uh, name and place in uh, Grateful Dead history um, and, and, and fun to listen to. And then, of course, uh, before we know it, we'll be uh, at Jerry's birthday and the days between. So... Um, that's always uh, an area that's rich for good topics, and uh, we'll be doing that as well, keeping an eye on what happens with this new federal uh, legislation that uh, Chuck Schumer's trying to push through and um, everything else that's going on on there in the cannabis world. Rob, any last words? Just excited for, uh, for the next couple of weeks of shows and super excited to celebrate Jerry's birthday in a few weeks and uh, talk about Watkins Glen next week. I mean, that's, uh, as you said, legendary performance. Uh, one of the biggest crowds the Grateful Dead ever played to. I think next to Woodstock, it might be the biggest crowd the Grateful Dead ever played to. So uh, it should be a lot of fun. Okay. Jim, any last words? Well, I believe Congress is getting ready for their August break, which will take them out of session until after the Labor Day weekend. So uh, things will go quiet um, on this legislation. So I guess they'll pick it back up in the fall. So... Um, We'll see what happens, see if, how many of our predictions come true. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's the good part about the cannabis business is there's still lots of things to predict. We just don't know the answers yet. Um, but as always, thank you to Jim. Thank you to Rob. Thank you to our wonderful producer, Dan Humiston, who gets all that great music lined up for us to listen to. 
Thank you to everyone on Clubhouse who is listening to us live. We appreciate your support. And to all of our listeners, have a great week. We will look forward to speaking to you again soon. And enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey friends, I'm Brandon and I'm Saba and we are your host of the Cannabis Hangout podcast, an educational platform to connect with the cannabis community and share personal stories while breaking the stigma of marijuana. Join us every Sunday at 7 p.m. to gain valuable insight with different perspectives from industry leaders, growers, and medical marijuana patients. This is a place to learn so much from different angles in the cannabis industry. So tune in while we break it all down.